Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BV Energy Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science or business management in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BV Energy Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be joining you again, and it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today. Uh, today, we'll be speaking with Jonah Berger. Jonah is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's an internationally best-selling author of three books, Contagious, Invisible Influence, and The Catalyst, which is the book we'll be speaking about the most today. Dr. Berger is a world-renowned expert on change, uh, word of mouth, influence, consumer behavior, and generally how products, ideas, and new behaviors catch on. He's published over 50 articles in top-tier academic journals, and his work is also co often covered by popular outlets like the New York Times and Harvard Business Review, among many others. And in his spare time, he also consults for Google, Apple, Nike, and uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, among many others. John, I am. We are at the BVA Energy Unit, big fan of uh, your work. Your book, Contagious, has been an insightful source of uh, inspiration for us. I do believe that the acronym that you have created at that time, STEPS, is really very powerful to understand and to master social transmission. Your most recent book, The Catalyst, which will be at the earth of, uh, as Scott just told us, uh, of our conversation today is a groundbreaking work to help us understand how we can change minds and organization. So we are more than happy, uh, Jonah, and honored to have this uh, opportunity of an in-depth conversation with you. Welcome, Jonah. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Well, Jonah, we'll, we'll jump in here, and, and I think we'd like to start maybe by just learning a little bit about your own history and your own journey and what ultimately led you to Wharton and, and in particular to your focus on social influence and, and on changing minds. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, I grew up uh, studying the hard sciences. So I actually went to a, a magnet uh, school that did uh, math, science, and computer science. Uh, I did a senior research project on urban hydrology, uh, looking at how land use, so you know whether we pave over certain areas or not, affects uh, the geometry of streams. And so um, you know thought I would be an environmental engineer. Uh, went to college uh, at Stanford. Started taking some courses. Um, started uh, reading more about some different things. Uh, came across an article in one of my classes about how uh, the way we build buildings changes the way we raise our children. The idea being, oh, when we live in uh, single-family homes, we can let our kids play out front because we can see them. But when we live in big apartment buildings, we can't see our kids play out front anymore, so we keep them in the house, so it changes how they how they grow up. And so I thought this was quite interesting. I asked uh, the professor, hey, you know, is there another class you recommend I take to learn more? Um, and he suggested social psychology. Uh, and so that really kicked off a journey. I started doing research uh, in a psychology lab uh, at Stanford. I started taking more psychology courses. Um, I read 
a book at the time that many of us are familiar with called The Tipping Point uh, about why things catch on. I thought it was fascinating. Um, I started taking more classes in sociology and in marketing. Um, I started doing more research. Uh, a guy by the name of Chip Heath, uh, had, who, who now we know as one of half of the Heath brothers who wrote Made to Stick and Decisive and other books, um, had recently come to Stanford as a professor, started doing research with him, um, and started really getting interested in why things catch on, uh, how social ends works, and uh, how change does and, and doesn't happen. And so um, what I love about this journey is uh, today I still get to apply those rich tools of experiments and data and statistics, uh, but to a new new area, right? Um, understanding social behavior, which is obviously much more complicated, um, but equally, if not even more interesting. Um, and so using these rich tools to try to understand, well, why do people do what they do? Um, and how by understanding why people do what they do, uh, can we help them make better decisions and live happier and healthier lives? That's great. And, and you know, much of what you speak about in your books, and in fact, you know, a lot of the references that you, that you just made, you know, in, in terms of, of some of the, the, the books and, and some of the, the people like Chip Heath and others, um, it sounds very familiar to us, you know, from our work in applied behavioral science. And I, I was really curious, uh, before we dive any deeper in, into your specific work, if you can talk with us a little bit about how you see the relationship between what you're doing and uh, applied behavioral science. Oh yeah, I mean, I consider myself a behavioral scientist. Um, uh, you know, I have a PhD in marketing. Um, uh, essentially, I'm trained as an experimental social psychologist, but no one really understands what that means. Whereas a behavioral scientist, almost like a data scientist, right? Where data science is a sexier term for someone who does statistics, and behavioral scientist is a sexier term for somebody who might study psychology or or management and and so on. But um, you know, I certainly see myself uh, as a behavioral scientist, and and much of the work that I do. Um, is to deepen our understanding of, of behavioral science and, you know, really appreciate the work that you guys uh, and others do in this space. You know, I think part of the reason behavioral science has gotten so much more attention recently is because there are organizations like yours and others who are really bringing these techniques and practices to life. Um, you know, it's one thing for academics to write papers and find things, um, but if no one writes books or, um, you know, helps companies apply these ideas, they're not really going to catch on. And so I think the, the wave of interest we've seen recently in behavioral science has really been driven by companies like yours and others that are saying, not only do we see these things in academic papers, but we can help your organization apply these things to make your own organizations better. Yeah, and that, that's a lot of the challenge we face really is, is doing our best to uh, kind of translate, so to speak, uh, from the, the academic world and, and pulling some of the key pieces there. And then how do we how do we apply that in, in the business world or in other organizations? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a big a big challenge. You know, one, uh, I'm an academic at heart. You know, I love doing academic research. Before we got on this call, I was working on a paper that I've been working on for, you know, months, if not years at this point. Um, but translating that work is often challenging. You know, the, the things that make a good academic article are not the same things uh, that make a good popular press book, which are not the same things that make a successful intervention in an organization. Uh, you know, psychologists are great at studying mechanism, but we're not always great at 
at, um, you know, looking at effect sizes or thinking about when and whether things will play out in the field. And so that's one reason why in, in most of my work, I try to incorporate field data, uh, you know, whether looking at uh, why New York Times articles make the most emailed list, uh, looking at what leads basketball teams to win games, uh, or, uh, you know, looking at why songs are popular or movies succeed. You know, it's, it's neat to study those things in the lab, but studying them in the field makes the insights a lot more applicable. I would like to know if you have uh, some mentors uh, uh, coming from the behavioral science field uh, who had a strong influence on you uh, um, or, uh, or do you only read books and research and it was enough for you? Oh, no. I mean, I, I certainly have had uh, a wonderful set of, of mentors. You know, uh, Chip Heath was one of my main advisors in graduate school. Uh, learned a lot from him. Uh, my other advisor was Itamar Simonson, who's uh, very famous for context effects in marketing. Uh, Lee Ross was my undergraduate advisor, sort of very famous social psychologist studying things like the fundamental attribution error and, and other things. Uh, Emily Pronin was one of my first uh, experiences in academic research uh, when I was an undergrad at Stanford. She's a professor of psychology at Princeton. So, you know, all of them and many others had a big, uh, big impact on my trajectory. Okay, thanks a lot. So uh, now, Jonah, we would like to talk about your most recent book, The Catalyst, uh, which is focused on the uh, challenge of changing people's minds. Can you elaborate on why you choose this topic and perhaps why changing other people's minds is so difficult. I think it's a, the right starting point. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll wind the clock back a few years. So uh, my first book, Contagious, came out in 2013. Um, and that book changed my life to some degree. Uh, you know, before that came, book came out, I was mostly uh, an academic. So mostly just doing uh, research and teaching, a little bit of consulting here and there, a little bit of speaking, but not very much. Uh, that book came out. Uh, it's now out in over uh, half a million copies in over 35 languages around the world. Um, and my my phone just started ringing, you know, everything from big Fortune 500 companies like the Googles and Facebooks and Nikes and Apples of the world to small startups, um, you know, uh, B2B companies and B2C companies, companies that wanted products and services to catch on and companies that wanted ideas and behaviors uh, to catch on. And so I really got a chance to learn a lot more uh, about how behavior change is happening in the field uh, at the moment. And, and what I realized is that all these organizations had something in common. Uh, which is they all had something they wanted to change. So, you know, folks in, in marketing uh, or sales wanted to change the customer or the consumer's mind. Uh, employees wanted to change their boss's mind. And leaders wanted to transform organizations. Uh, uh, you know, startups wanted to change industries and nonprofits wanted to change the world. Uh, but change, as we all know, is really, really hard. You know, often these companies and these individuals would push and they'd prod and they'd cajole and they'd pressure uh, and nothing would happen. And so uh, I started wondering, you know, could there be a better way? Could there be a better way to change minds uh, and incite action uh, rather than pushing? And, and that's really where this journey started. And, you know, I started digging into the academic literature, everything from uh, psychology and marketing and management, um, but also interviews, you know, talking to top performing salespeople and transformational leaders, uh, you know, talking to hostage negotiators and parenting experts, talking to substance abuse counselors and political action uh, drivers. And, and again and again, we saw the same things coming coming up. Um, and so what I realized is it's not about pushing. We actually need to do something else that's quite different. 
Okay, uh, great. Uh, before talking about your key uh, insight, could you uh, elabor elaborate a little about where your insight comes from? Which studies in this field have been uh, inspiring for you? I mean, there, there's there's too many to count. Uh, so, so obviously, uh, you know, a lot of my own research uh, has gone into this book. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of work, for example, uh, looking at why some issues uh, get more attention in the popular sphere. Um, uh, and that's certainly uh, quite important uh, work on the confirmation bias um, uh, and sort of old literature on behavioral change coming out of psychology, uh, work in sociology uh, on uh, sort of complex contagions and uh, when we see tipping points and change, um, uh, you know, so much work in a, in a variety of different fields. Um, you know, as an academic at heart, I've, I've published, uh, you know, over 50 articles in academic journals. And so um, I love, uh, love academic research. That said, I think the key thing in a book like this is not just to talk about research, but talking about how we can apply that research. Um, and so uh, really it's building on the studies and what they found, but then making them actionable. Uh, I think you mentioned that driving change is less about pushing harder and more about reducing barriers. Can you discuss this point further and perhaps share uh, uh, an example or two? Yeah, you know, I think a good way to think about it, um, uh, you know, whenever we think about changing someone's mind, whether that person is a boss, uh, an employee, a customer, uh, whoever it might be, we often take some version of, of pushing, right? Uh, providing more information, more facts, more figures. If I just make one more sales call, if I just make one more presentation, uh, people will come around. And it's clear why we think that, right? If there's a chair in the middle of a room uh, and we want to move that chair, pushing is often a great way to get that chair to go. If we push the chair, it'll go in the direction we often want it to. And so we often take the same approach with people. If I just push them a little bit harder, they'll go. Uh, but there's a problem. People aren't chairs. Right? When chairs are pushed, they go in the direction we want them to go. When people are pushed, they push back. They often do the exact opposite of what we want them to do, or they dig in their heels and they're unlikely to move. And so if, if pushing doesn't work, what does? Well, um, uh, there's an interesting uh, point to be made, an interesting analogy made with chemistry. Right? Obviously, change in chemistry is very hard, uh, hard to get chemical elements to become one another. Uh, often, it takes a lot of temperature and pressure, but chemists add a special set of substances that makes change happen faster and easier. But what's most interesting about these substances is not the fact they make change easier, but the way they make change easier. They don't increase the temperature. They don't increase the pressure, but they lower the barrier to change. They find a way to make change happen with less pressure and less temperature, not, not more. And these substances are called catalysts. And when we think about catalysts in the social world, we often think about a change agent, but catalyst has a very specific meaning, right? Reducing the barriers to change. And I think it's a useful way to think about this space. Too often, when we have someone who want to change, we go, well, what could I do to make that person change? But very infrequently, do we take a slightly different approach and say, well, hey, why hasn't that person changed already? What's stopping them? Right? If you think about being parked in a car, for example, imagine you're parked on a hill, you get into your car, you stick your key in the ignition, you turn uh, the key, and you step your foot on the gas. If the car doesn't go, we think we just need more gas. If employees aren't changing, if customers aren't changing, whoever it is, if, if uh, the population at large isn't changing, we think we just need to push them harder. More information, more facts, more figures, more reasons, right? But often we just need to look to the right and depress the parking brake. Because if that parking brake is up in the car, we can step on the gas as much as we want, but the car's not going to go anywhere. 
And so that's what this book is all about, right? How can we be better at identifying those parking brakes that come up again and again, the barriers that get in the way of change, and how can we how can we mitigate them? Thanks a lot. In uh, in contagious, I think uh, your uh, acronym uh, steps was uh, great. You have again created a very helpful one in this uh, book in the Catalyst. Reduce with the idea of reducing roadblocks is critical to be successful at behavioral change. Could you explain to our listeners this acronym? I think it is R for reactance. I for endowment, D for distance, U for uncertainty, and C for corroborating evidence. Could you elaborate a little on each of these? Because I think it will be wonderful for our listener to, to understand what you have in mind to be successful. Yeah. So, uh, you know, first of all, what was interesting here is um, the parallels that, that I saw. So I was just writing this book, you know, whether I was talking to successful salespeople or parenting experts, whether I was talking to hostage negotiators or, um, uh, you know, canvassers that go door to door and get people to change their minds in politics. Again and again, I saw the same barriers coming up. Right. Again and again, I saw the same uh, five factors coming up that were preventing change from happening. Uh, and so I put them in, in an acronym, uh, as you mentioned, uh, REDUCE, and that stands for R is for reactance, uh, E is for endowment, D is for distance, U for uncertainty, C, E for corroborating evidence. These five barriers come up again uh, and again. It's not that we see all five in everything we're trying to change, but again and again, we often see these, these barriers uh, crop up. And so um, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it one at length and then see what, what we have time for, but you know, even even taking the idea of reactance, right? So, um, uh, you know, often when we try to change people, we push, and, and does that work? And so, um, there's a great story I, t I tell in the book uh, of of these things called Tide Pods. And so, I'm not sure if you've seen them before, but uh, you probably have some version of laundry pods, right? You throw them in the uh, the washing machine, and they do the laundry. And so, it's an interesting story because uh, Tide, maker of Procter uh, Procter and Gamble, maker of Tide, spent. $100 million launching these laundry pods. They're pretty successful. But then they hit a snag, which is that people are eating them. And you might say, well, well, hold on. What do you mean people are eating them? Aren't they filled with chemicals? They are filled with chemicals. And yes, people are, are eating them, right? Uh, and so there was a funny video online. There was a piece uh, posted on a satirical website. And suddenly young people, mostly young people, are challenging each other to eat Tide Pods. Uh, it's called the Tide Pod Challenge. Uh, and imagine you're a Tide executive if this is happening, right? You're sitting there going, people are eating these chemicals, right? What are we going to do? And so they did what any organization would do they made an announcement saying, don't eat Tide Pods, right? Like any company or any health organization would do. They said, don't do it. And in, in case that's not enough, they hired some celebrities uh, to shoot public service announcements telling people not to eat Tide Pods. And they thought that would be the end of it, right? Uh, best case, it would stop people from eating Tide Pods. Worst case, it would have no effect. But if you look at the data, you see something really interesting. Tide tells people not to eat Tide Pods, and it doesn't decrease interest in Tide Pods, and it doesn't have no effect on interest in Tide Pods. It actually increases interest in the Tide Pod Challenge. Search results go up over 200%. Visits to poison control go up as well. Essentially, a warning becomes a recommendation. Telling people not to eat Tide Pods actually makes them more likely to do it. And this is really interesting, not only because it, it doesn't make sense, but because it's, a much, it's an example of a much broader phenomenon, right? Um, when we push people, whether we tell them not to do something or even when we tell them to do something, they often push back. 
They often do the exact opposite uh, of what we want to do. And the reason is because they have an ingrained anti-persuasion radar. They have this ingrained reactance, right? People want to feel like they have freedom and control. Why did I do? Why, I wanna, why did I buy a product? Why did I use the service? Why did I take an action? Um, uh, you know, why did I work on a certain project at the office? I did it because I wanted to. But when we, whether we are a company, whether we are the government, whether we are an organization, come in and tell people what to do, suggest to people what to do, it often backfires, right? Um, because now they no longer feel like they're in control. And so when we try to persuade people, they push back. They ignore the message. They avoid it. Or even worse, they seem like they're listening, but they're actually counter-arguing. Right? They're sitting there and thinking about all the reasons why what we're suggesting is a bad idea. And so what it means is when we want to be change agents, whether we're a governmental organization, whether we're a company, whatever it might be, we can't just give people information and we can't just persuade people. We have to figure out a way to reduce reactants. Rather than persuading them, we have to get them to persuade themselves. Rather than trying to sell them, we have to get them to buy in. Right? We have to give them back that sense of freedom and autonomy uh, and use that to drive action. So I'm, I'm happy to ha talk about some of the ways uh, to reduce reactants, but that's at least one of the key barriers uh, and some sense of how it works. And, and maybe what I'll do even is just give you an example of how we might solve reactants first before we go to a quick, uh, completely different principle. But um, uh, you know, that idea of giving people back their freedom, uh, I think is a really, a really powerful one. And you know, often, when we tell people to do something, we give them one option. So we're in a meeting, we're telling people, hey, this is what, what you should do. This is a particular course of action. And someone's sitting there listening, but they're really thinking about all the reasons why it won't work. It's too expensive. It'll be difficult to implement. We're going to have to redo our team structure. It's, it's just not going to work. You know, thanks, but no thanks. But what great salespeople, great leaders, great presenters do is they don't just give people one option. They give them multiple they do what I call providing a menu. Because what providing a menu does is it shifts the role uh, of the listener. Rather than sitting there and think about all the reasons they don't like what you've suggested, instead now they've got a different job. Now they're sitting there going, huh, which of these do I like better? Right? If you say, hey, I think you should do A or B, which one do you like better? Now I'm going, huh, which one do I like better? And because I'm focused on which one I like better, I'm much more likely to take action at the end of that meeting and to do something like what you wanted me to do. Not about giving people 100 options, not about giving people 15 options, but a small set, a limited number of options gives them back that feeling of choice, gives them back that freedom and autonomy. It's, it's guided choice. You're not forcing them to do one thing or something else, but it's guiding the journey, right? It's encouraging them to go a particular direction, but giving them back that freedom uh, and making them more likely to go along uh, as, as a result. Uh, should I talk about endowment next? Please. Yeah. Um, and so in endowment is all about the idea uh, that we think what we're doing already is safe. Uh, and so I, I talk a lot about in the book, and your listeners may be familiar with this notion already, but the idea of the status quo bias, right? We all have the status quo bias. We're all attached to the status quo. We tend to vote for candidates we've voted for before. We tend to buy the same products we've bought in the past, use the same services. Um, if you look at companies, for example, they tend to stick with the same projects and initiatives they've done in the past, even if those projects are losing money or not working as effectively as they'd hoped. And they tend to be very wary of starting new projects projects uh, and initiatives, even if they look quite promising. Uh, we tend to be attached to what we're doing. 
and we tend to be scared uh, of new things. And <clears throat> those are two pieces of the status quo bias. And uncertainty is all about um, the fear of new things uh, and the challenge of sort of moving to something new. But endowment is all about the attachment uh, to old stuff. Um, there's lots of work on the endowment effect, for example, that shows uh, that if I give you something, uh, a product or a service, uh, and then I ask you how much you value it, you value it much more than someone that doesn't have it already. So in a famous study, for example, you know, if I give you a mug and then I ask you how much you'd be willing to accept to sell it to someone else versus I ask you how much you'd be willing to pay to buy a mug, those prices should be the same, right? It's the same mug regardless of if you own it or if you don't. Uh, but if you own it already, you value it more. And if you don't have it already, you value it, it less, right? And so this is a big challenge for change because we're trying to get people to move from uh, a mug they don't have uh, to one that they should have in the future. So, so how do we overcome that? Um, and so I think a key insight uh, is, is that people think that the status quo is safe. They think that the status quo is costless. I'm doing this thing already. Uh, it's not terrible, right? Um, uh, and so, uh, you, know, you know, why not, why not just keep, uh, keep doing it? Um, but that's not exactly right. There's a, um, there's a great study uh, that looks at um, injuries. Uh, so imagine you have a, a minor injury, uh, like you sprain an ankle or you twerk your knee or you, you know, uh, hurt, hurt your back uh, repeatedly playing basketball or a more major injury. You shatter your kneecap or, um, you know, you really have a, a major injury. Which one hurts more? And so if you think about it, uh, and indeed people do, they say, well, of course, a major injury hurts a lot more. Right? A major injury is really, really painful. Um, and they're right that a major is painful immediately, but it turns out that minor injuries end up causing us a lot more pain over the long haul. And, and the reason why is that we never get them fixed. If you have a major injury, you shatter a kneecap, you have to go get a cast on your leg, right? Uh, if you have a heart attack, you have to go get it fixed. Whereas if you just have a nagging pain in your back or your finger or an eye, you never go to the doctor, you never get surgery, you never do physical therapy, and as a result, it ends up being a lot more painful over the course uh, of the lifespan. And the same thing is true with change more broadly. The challenge is if what people were doing already was terrible, they would have already switched. If someone was using a terrible product or service really wasn't working, they would have already switched. The problem is what they're doing currently is good but not great. It's good enough. Yeah, it's not terrible. The existing project or approach might be losing money. It's not the best, but it's not so terrible that it's worth shutting down. Right? Imagine if you think about your own home, for example. You know, if you have an infestation of cockroaches, you call an exterminator. Right? It's so terrible, you get it fixed. But if they're just a couple of flies, oh, I'll save it till next week. Right? It's not bad enough to fix the problem. And this is also the challenge of the status quo. The status quo isn't terrible enough. It was terrible enough we would have fixed it. And so how do we get people to let go uh, of the status quo? And so one thing I talk a lot about is how can we highlight the cost of an action? Right? People think uh, action is really costly, but inaction is, is costly uh, as, as well. And so, you know, uh, I was talking to a cousin of mine uh, about this book, um, and uh, I was talking to him back and forth over email, and I was noticing that he would write his email signature every time by hand. So at the bottom of his email, he would write, best Charles, every time he wrote uh, an email. And I said, well, why don't you just put that as part of your email signature? Right? It'll take a lot less time. It'll save you a bunch of time. And he said, you know, I don't know how to do that. And it only takes a couple of seconds to write my email signature, but it would take a lot longer to figure out how to automate it. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Again, the cost of inaction seemed very low. 
the cost of action seemed very high. It's a big barrier to get to get over. And so after trying a while to get him to change, I took a different approach. I said, well, rather than telling him what to do, I asked him a question. How many emails do you write a day? He said, I don't know, maybe uh, 60, 70 emails. I said, okay, how many do you write a week? He said, I don't know, 400. And I said, okay, how much time do you spend on each email writing your email signature? And he thought about it for a moment. He said, oh, I thought about it, did the math. And then he typed into Google, automating your email signature. Because at each moment in time, right, it was, it was cheaper, it was faster to do it by hand, right? It was, it was costly, the action was costly, inaction wasn't costly. But across the course of time, it was like that minor injury. Across the course of time, it's like having flies in your house, right? Eventually, you got to get rid of it. And so by highlighting the cost of inaction, by encouraging people to see it's actually a big cost over time, we can motivate them to take that action and ease, in, ease endowment. Great. Thanks a lot. Very uh, inspiring. Um, in Catalyst, uh, Jana, you speak about changing minds. In our work in behavioral science, we focus quite explicitly on changing behaviors on the premise that convincing people doesn't always lead them to act differently. Can you comment on this distinction between uh, minds and behavior? Yeah, certainly. And, and I think, you know, it, it goes both ways. So, so I think in general, you know, we don't have to change minds uh, to change behavior, right? Um, uh, if you think about the grocery store, for example, um, why do they put candy bars right in front uh, of the checkout line? Um, you, your mind may have said, don't buy candy bars anymore. I'm trying not to eat sweets. But the fact that they're there and they're so easy and they're on sale makes you buy them. Um, and so that is a case where our minds might say, don't do it, but our behaviors end up uh, uh, doing it. And so Changing minds can be helpful to change behavior, but it doesn't necessarily change behavior. And the reverse is also true, right? Sometimes we may be able to change behavior in the short term, but to get long-term behavioral change, we really have to change uh, uh, minds. And so, you know, I talk about both in the book. I talk about examples where we can change behavior without necessarily needing to change minds. Um, you know, in, in my first book, Contagious, I talked a lot about the power of triggers. Right, a lot about how subtle cues in the environment can shift behavior. Right, I did a study at Stanford many years ago where we got students to eat more fruits and vegetables, not by changing how they felt about fruits and vegetables, but by changing how often they thought about it. Because when they thought about it more frequently, they were more likely to do it. Right, and so um, you know, sometimes we need to change minds to change behavior, uh, and sometimes we need to uh, not do so. Uh, but both can be important depending on the situation. Jonah, many of uh, our listeners are executive and manager in the business world who are attempting to shift the culture within their organization. What advice would you share with them in terms of applying what you have learned? Yeah, I mean, you know, what we talked about today and, and many of the ideas in the book are all about that. You know, I speak at so many events to so many organizations where someone says, we have to think differently. And everyone in the audience goes, yeah. And then they go back to their jobs and do exactly the same things they were doing before, right? Why? Because of the status quo bias. It's easier to keep doing the same stuff we were doing before. And so as great leaders, as folks that are trying to catalyze change within organizations, trying to change organizational culture, it's not enough just to push harder. It's not just enough to make another speech. Incentives aren't going to work. We've got to remove the barriers, right? We've got to think about what are the barriers to cultural change? Is it endowment? 
right? Is it that people in their current uh, jobs are paid in a way that makes them not want to do the, the cultural shift we want to do because they're worried it'll affect uh, their consumption? Is it distance, right? Are we at what we're asking for too far from what they're doing already? Is it uncertainty? The thing we're asking them to do is scary and it's it's new. Is it reactance? They don't like being told what to do, right? Uh, before we can change organizational culture, we have to understand the barriers. If you think about you know, going to a doctor's office, for example, a doctor doesn't start the visit by saying, let me put a cast on your leg. Right? A doctor starts the visit by saying, well, let me understand what the problem is. And only once I understand the problem, can I prescribe the right solution? And I think leaders too often jump right to the solution. Right? They say, oh, this is the change I want to achieve without understanding why that change hasn't occurred already. And so we've got to be better at finding those parking brakes, starting by figuring out, well, what is preventing that desired change from happening? What's presenting, preventing that shift in organizational culture, for example? And by understanding that, how can we make desired change more likely? Yeah, thank you, Jonah. Um, in our remaining time today, we, we'd love to get your perspective on, on two major current events, and you're probably going to be able to guess which ones they might be. <laughs> um, and they're both enormous issues, but I, I think it'd be really interesting just to, to hear some of your thoughts on, on the linkage between some of the things you've been speaking of and how they might apply. So the first is, is the COVID crisis. Um, that's an area that we've actually been doing work with the French government to uh, both try to change people's minds and, and their behaviors around safety. Um, so we're curious to hear your thoughts on, on and advice on how you advise governments to um, encourage citizens to adopt safe behavior. Yeah, you know, I, I work with a, a lot of public organizations, uh, public health officials, governmental organizations, um, and I think uh, COVID's been a big challenge for them. Uh, and the reason why is they tend to default to the same playbook uh, that they've used for decades that tends not to work, which is that there's something you want people to do, tell them to do it. And if there's something you don't want people to do, tell them not to do it. Right, uh, but as we saw in the, in the Tide Pods uh, example, that often backfires. Right, um, and so I wrote a piece a couple months ago for the Harvard Business Review on, on exactly this. You know, I, I think the challenge, um, uh, and I talk a lot about smoking, by the way, in the book, and organizations that have gotten uh, people to quit smoking, not by telling people to quit. Right, for years, organizations would tell people quit smoking, um, and it's not that smokers smoke because they think it's healthy. It's not that smokers smoke because they haven't gotten the information they need. Smokers smoke for a lot of other reasons, and so telling them not to smoke, telling them it's dangerous, uh, isn't going to, to work. There's a, a great campaign that I talk about in the book uh, from Thailand, uh, from the Thai Health uh, Promotion Foundation, um, where uh, they have people ask smokers for a light. Um, uh, but the people who ask smokers for a light are actually a small child. An eight or 10 year old child asks smokers for a light. And of course, smokers then say, well, no way, I'm, I'm not giving you a light. You know, you know smoking's bad for you. Don't you want to go run and play? Um, uh, you know, no, I'm not going to smoke. And at the end of the interaction, the child says, okay, and hands him a slip of paper that says, you worry about me, but not yourself to quit smoking, call this quit line. And what that campaign very nicely does is it highlights a gap. Right? Smokers aren't smoking because they think it's healthy. Um, you know, People around COVID aren't doing things because they think they're healthy or not. They're doing things because they want to, because it fits with their identity, because they don't want to be told uh, what to do. Um, and so highlighting a gap between attitudes and actions, for example, is a great way to change minds. Um, you know, If someone's at the office, for example, and they're not wearing a mask, telling them wear a mask, well, all that's going to do is induce reactance. Don't tell me what to do. 
who are you to tell me to wear a mask? Even if I might have worn a mask before, now that you told me that I should wear one, maybe I don't want to wear it anymore because now I feel like you're in control rather than me. And so instead, think about some tools to lower barriers, right? Think about highlighting a gap. Imagine saying to someone who's not wearing a mask, hey, if your elderly grandparents were around, or your small children were around, would you want other people to wear a mask? And most people would probably say, yes, I'd want other people to wear a mask. Okay, well then why aren't you wearing one? Right? Guiding that journey using questions to shape that interaction rather than telling people what to do. And I, I talk a lot about in the reactions chapter about asking rather than telling. Right, Using questions as a way to guide people. Too often, particularly in health communications, we just think if we tell people what to do, they'll do it. But telling people doesn't work. It often incites reactions. We need to guide that journey using questions and other approaches. Great. Thank you. Um, fascinating and, and you know, certainly resonates a, a lot of what you're saying in terms of what we've seen and heard as well, that uh, providing more information and more reasons to people who already know um, yet aren't acting uh, as intent to change their behaviors at all. Um, the, the second issue, yeah, please, please jump. Yeah, sorry, if I can say one more thing about that. You know, I, I think I, I, I'm a marketing professor, so I think a lot about the analogy of the customer journey, but I think it's a really useful one. And, and when I work with clients, you know, we often talk about is let's diagram the journey from where someone is now to where we want them to be. And let's think about the steps that they need to go through, right? So let's say someone isn't buying a certain product. Are they not buying it because they're not aware of it? Or they're aware of it, but they don't think they'd like it. Or they think that they like it, but they don't think they have the problem the product solves. Or they think they have the problem, but they think it's too expensive. Or they think it'll be difficult to integrate with their existing systems. If we don't understand what the barriers are, I think too often, particularly with governmental sort of organizations, they have no idea. Right? They haven't done the upfront research to figure out why people aren't doing what they want them to do. They just know they want people to do that thing, and they assume if I shove it down their throat, they'll do it. We've got to start by understanding why people aren't doing what we want them to do, and only then can we solve the problem. Yeah, I think uh, you're right in the sense that I think governments tend to default to thinking everything is an awareness problem or, an, or a lack of information problem. Uh, and thus, you do a bigger public uh, campaign to solve the problems that are not really the barriers uh, to change for most people. Yes, you're exactly right, yeah. Okay, well, the, the second issue um, that, that I wanted to ask you about um, is the US election. Uh, I can't resist since we're only about two weeks away and I'm not gonna ask you to prognosticate or anything along those lines, but are there things that you've learned uh, about helping people distinguish fact from fiction and and perhaps um, run, you know, help limit the, the spread of conspiracy theories or things that, that are known not to be true. Yeah, sure. And I think I think we have a couple minutes left, so I'm happy to answer this question, and then maybe we can uh, wrap up. But, you know, I think what's so interesting, um, I got started studying uh, this space by studying rumors and urban legends. And so this was in the early 2000s. This is before the internet was as big as it is today. You know, Facebook was still at its infancy. Um, and I remember telling people I was studying rumor and urban rumors and urban legends, and people would laugh at me. They say, well, why do we care about rumors and urban legends? Only kids, only little kids share rumors and urban legends, right? I mean, you know, only little kids share sort of false information. This isn't a problem at all. And flash forward to 20 years, right? And now disinformation is one of the biggest problems uh, that we're wrestling with. And so, you know, if you look why rumors and urban legends succeed, it's not because they're necessarily uh, valuable. It's not because they make us better off, right? They succeed because they take advantage of the way we're built. 
right? Um, we don't care necessarily. We don't, the first thing we think about with information is not whether it's true or false. We think about, is it interesting? What emotions does it evoke? Is it consistent with my worldview, right? If we see a piece of information and it agrees with what we think, we go, oh, great. And if we see a piece of information that disagrees with what we think, we go, well, how can I figure out a way this isn't true? And so I think that the big challenge, again, is, uh, you know, too often we think about, oh, well, people should just be smarter, right? If we could just make people smarter, they'd be better at recognizing uh, disinformation. And I don't think that's actually the solution, right? I think we need to think about platforms and think about identifying disinformation and how to get that off platforms. But secondly, I think we really need to understand how to make the true stuff just as viral and likely to be shared and engaging and tasty as, as the false stuff. You know, I often, when I, when I give a talk on this topic, I often start off by saying, you know, let's contrast a cheeseburger with broccoli, right? We all know we should eat more broccoli, yet we all reach for the cheeseburger. Why? Because it's tasty, right? It fits the way our, tum our, our stomach and our, our tongue are, are designed, um, but it doesn't mean broccoli's stuck, right? We can cook broccoli in a way that makes it tastier. If we steam broccoli, probably not so delicious, but if we roast it with some olive oil and sea salt, probably a lot more delicious. And so the key is we need to understand what makes things tasty, what makes information and ideas tasty, and use that to cook the true stuff, engineer the true stuff uh, to, to be tastier. And so I think that's really the question. There's this old quote, you know, um, uh, often lies have uh, run three miles before the truth even gets its boots on or something like that. And I think the same thing is true in today's day and age. You know, to combat misinformation, disinformation, we can't change people because people are not going to change, right? We have to change the systems on which this information uh, is spread and put things that make it harder to spread false information. And I think advances in machine learning and natural language processing are certainly helping here. Uh, but then second, we need to figure out how to engineer true stuff so it's more likely to succeed. Thank you. Really, really interesting perspective on that. Thank you very much. Uh, so, last question, maybe. Could you tell us more about your future? Uh, some exciting new uh, topics or project or book from your side? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment is on what's called natural language processing. Taking textual data, uh, whether that is the language we speak, like on today's conversation, whether it is uh, written things like in newspaper articles uh, or movies or songs, and using those words to extract behavioral insight. So we've understood things like what makes customer service calls go better or worse, what makes people read content online based on the way that content uh, is written, what makes certain conversations or discussions last longer versus shorter, what makes movies and songs succeed, um, what makes books uh, and narratives more engaging, uh, and a variety of, of other topics. And I think this is really, in some sense, the future of social science. There's so much unstructured, often textual data out there. How can we mine that for insight? Uh, and use that to change uh, behavior. And so I think that's a really exciting space. I'm doing a, a lot of work in that space. And I, um, you know, hopefully in a few years, would love to come back and talk more about it. That would be great. We'd really welcome that. And um, yeah, I really just wanted to wrap things up by thanking you so much. Um, just some really interesting and very well presented and shared. And I, I know our listeners will appreciate it. Uh, so just to conclude, is there anything you'd like to, to leave as a, as, as a final message or, or maybe point people in the right direction in terms of finding out more about some of the things we spoke about today? 
Sure. Yeah. So uh, the book uh, should be available whenever, wherever books are sold. Uh, again, called the Catalyst. So Amazon, uh, Apple, Audible, wherever you go for books. Um, uh, but I would direct people to two other places. I'd say uh, first, um, there are a bunch of free resources on my website. So if you're interested in learning more about how to change a boss's mind, a colleague's mind, uh, customer behavior, transform organizational culture, a bunch of resources uh, on my site, which is just Jonah, uh, J-O-N-A-H, uh, Burger, B-E-R-G-E-R. Com. Uh, but then I think the thing I would love to leave people with um, is, you know, all of us have something we want to change, whether it's in our personal or professional lives, whether it's big or small, we all have something we wish uh, was different. But change is, is really hard. Um, but if we understand why people don't change already, if we get better at identifying those barriers, those parking brakes, we can really change anything. And so I think this is a big opportunity. It's not, uh, it's not crazy different from what we're doing already, but it's an important and subtle shift. By thinking about change differently, we can be really become better change agents and, and better catalysts. Thanks a lot. It was really uh, great. Thanks again. Uh, and uh, we hope to talk soon again on natural language and uh, your new discoveries. <laughs> well, thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. Be good a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.